Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all comprehension, shall defend our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, I have one announcement, and that is that... Um, um, my mind is going blank already... Um, um, who's that who just left there? Son's having, David, their son's having the, uh, wife is having a baby. Oh, baby. Be- Betty and Dick Munson. How can I forget them? Their son, David's wife, Jennifer, who is the daughter of, uh, the Burdettes, is having, going into labor now, so they had to take off, so we should be, we'll be in prayer for them, uh, this evening. Also, one other announcement you can just put on your calendar. We're planning to have a church picnic on Saturday, October the 9th. Details to follow. Okay, we'll go out to uh, out in the country somewhere and have a picnic. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that everybody can make sure you're ready to study the Word, ready to focus on uh, uh, what God has to teach us this evening and that you're in fellowship. And then after a few moments of silent prayer, I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your grace, for how your grace has been demonstrated in in our lives, uh, first and foremost, because in your grace you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins, to pay that penalty so that we might have uh, eternal life, we might have be reconciled to you and have peace with you because of his work on the cross. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the dynamics of this uh, transaction that occurred on the cross and how that impacts us, that we in turn, might implement that in, in our own lives your, and that your grace would be manifested in our own lives in terms of forgiveness and reconciliation and the pursuit of peace. Father, right now we pray, too, for uh, Jennifer, and we pray that you would um, just be with her and that uh, everything goes smoothly in the birth of uh, the child and that, that uh, it would be a, be a smooth delivery. Father, we pray for the family that's driving to get there tonight, and we pray that you'd keep them safe and keep them safe on the road. And we just uh, pray all these things now in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Hebrews 12, 14 and following, where the topic is to pursue peace. Tonight I'm focusing on the aspect of peace, as I pointed out in, in previous classes, there are 
four ideas that are related in the pursuit of peace. One is love, the second is grace, the third is reconciliation, the fourth is forgiveness. And in terms of our life as believers, forgiveness toward others is not an option. And that's really clear from a number of things that our Lord taught and as we get into the, into the New Testament. Hebrews 12, 14 says, pursue peace with all people and holiness or sanctification are what we would call, to, so it has a little more sense for us, the, our, our spiritual life, our, and sanctification has to do with being set apart to the service of God. So part of being set apart to the service of God entails uh, pursuing peace, and part of that, of course, is exercising forgiveness towards others. This is the same kind of same idea that's echoed in First Thessalonians 5:15, that we are to seek after that which is good for one another. That means this is a, a command; it's not an option; it's uh, mandated in every every arena of life. Now, in terms of review, because as I've gone over what I've taught the last few weeks, we've actually spent five or six uh, lessons on this topic now. I want to just review uh, where we've come from in terms of four points. First of all, I developed the idea that peace was related to love, grace, reconciliation, and forgiveness. The foundation of the Christian life is understanding and it's going to differ. As a baby, you have a very, very limited understanding of the love of your parents for a for a child, for an infant. But there's a a baby's understanding of love. As you grow, there's a child's understanding of love, an adolescent's understanding of love, and a mature person's understanding of love. But we understand the love of God, and that we are recipients of God's love, and the benefit. Fisheries of God's love at salvation because God loved the world in such a way, John 3.16 says, that he gave his unique son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5.8, and that chapter is important. We'll get there tonight, I hope. Romans 5.8, God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, while we were still in a state of enmity, a state of hostility, a state of rebellion, Christ died for us. It has nothing to do with who and what we are, but everything to do with who God is and his character. That is the important issue in understanding the pursuit of peace and, and, and uh, forgiveness. Love, then, is expressed towards an undeserving object in terms of what the word we use is grace. And grace means unmerited or undeserved kindness. I want to emphasize that because often what we hear is undeserved kindness. Somebody needs to be kind to us. It's undeserved kindness. You know, we just don't hear the undeserved part. We just hear the second part. But it's really undeserved kindness. We don't deserve it. It's unmerited. We, In fact, we deserve just the opposite. And... So when that gets applied in terms of human relationships, it, that's where it gets pretty difficult. And we think that somehow we can just skate by by not having anything to do with the person who has uh, offended us or has seriously abused us or hurt us or defrauded us in some way. 
Reconciliation means that there is a basis for bringing those who are in personal conflict and are completely polarized back together. That's what reconciliation means. That's not easy. In a lot of cases, that won't work, but it shouldn't be our fault that it doesn't work. And then forgiveness. forgiveness you can't have reconciliation without forgiveness, and there has to be real, genuine, biblical forgiveness that can only be a product of God the Holy Spirit. So in the first point, I developed these ideas of love, grace, reconciliation, forgiveness, and how they're related to pursuing peace with others. Second, I looked at aspects of both love and grace in terms of the fact that they can only be understood as the that when we're talking about pursuing peace, they can only be understood as the ultimate reference point in God's character. So there's love and grace as part of God's character, and then it's demonstration at the cross. And the more we think about the cross and the more we probe what God has done in relation to rebellious, obnoxious, uh, antagonistic sinners, we come to understand how, how uh, the, the fact that there's nothing that has ever occurred to us, no one has ever treated us as harshly as we've treated God. No one has ever treated us with less respect uh, than we have treated God. No one has ever uh, gone against us or betrayed us in the same way that, that we have betrayed God. And that's the essence of being a fallen creature and a, and a sinner. And so when we stop and we say, you know, I just can't forgive them, that has a lot of implications in terms of our own failure to really understand who God is and what happened at the cross and with the uh, giving of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Third, I looked at Matthew 7, 3, and 4, the last couple of lessons, I think, that looking at the fact that the key element in pursuing peace is genuine humility toward us. We have to be humble enough to, be, to recognize and to examine ourselves to face the reality of our contribution to the conflict. Now, depending on the conflict, depending on the situation, we will have contributed to the conflict in varying degrees. And I think it's important to recognize that there's always the person who is hypersensitive in terms of their own conscience, and they're so willing, they're so eager to have reconciliation that, that on the one hand, what, what these people do is they will rush into the reconciliation process and assume blame and responsibility that goes beyond their actual level of responsibility because they, they, they just want reconciliation to occur and not to have a conflict and for there to be a right, peaceful relationship. The problem with that is that if the other person in the conf- that's, that's caused the conflict is not honest and is not brought to that point in their own spiritual growth to honestly face the, the, their responsibility, then what the hypersensitive person has done is basically given them a pass and instead of resolving the issue that ha- that's caused the, that caused the breach and caused the conflict, it simply set things up for its repetition. And so when a person 
is too eager in the pursuit of peace and was willing to let bygones be bygones and let just all smooth things out without there ever being um, uh, necessarily an admission of guilt on the part of the other person, a recognition of their contribution to the problem, then it doesn't really bring things to to a conclusion. It simply uh, generates more problems. So there, there's two, as I pointed out, there's two problems to sort of watch out for here. One is the uh, acceptance of responsibility where none exists, and that's the problem of the hypersensitive conscience that just perpetuates the problem. And then the other is the person who gets caught up in self-justification and self-deception out of arrogance and isn't willing to recognize the level or the degree to which they are, uh, they contribute to the conflict. So you can have either of these going on, in which case, when if a resolution occurs without, or if a resolution occurs where these uh, are either of these is present, it's not a real resolution. It's just a it's just a fraud. It's a counterfeit, and then next thing you know, there's going to be another another problem, another conflict, and that happens in all kinds of relationships, and it happens in all kinds of situations. So we have to follow that principle of Matthew 7.34 in terms of humility, being willing to examine ourselves and take the log out of our own eye before we start focusing on the other person's uh, problem, which is in the passage is looking at the grain of sand in their eye. And then the fourth thing we've looked at is the passage in Ephesians 4.32 to 5.2, which points out that the pattern that we always have to look to is God. He is the role model, and we have to constantly go to God and not to human beings. Human, there are some people we see that model this well, but they will not always model it well. And when we see them model it wrong, that often is used as see, it just, we just can't do it. The pattern is always to look to God, not to man. God is our, God is our role model. And as we go f- look at this, I want to go to back to that passage, so you might want to turn back there in your uh, in your Bible for a few moments this evening as we go back to Ephesians uh, 4.32, just to add a few more comments to this. Last time I pointed out that there's a whole series, a whole series of commands that take place in this, uh, in this section, most of which are present, present imperatives which indicate that this is supposed to be the standard uh, standard operating procedure, the standard uh, behavior for the Christian way of life. This is what God expects from all of us all the time. And I went through, I went back to about verse, I guess, 18 or 19 to 17, and I started walking through all of the different commands that we have all the way down to five uh, 18, which is the command to be filled by means of the Spirit. And there's just one mandate after another, all these commands for the Christian life. And in the middle of this, we have this section from 432 to 52 that gets separated in our reading and sometimes in teaching because there's a chapter division there, and sometimes there are some other things that come between the, the chapters and we lose sight of the fact that this is all one contiguous uh, explanation. Verse 32, Paul says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God 
uh, in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also have, has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Now, I've underlined the B in verse 32 and 5-1 because both passages start with the same Greek verb, genomai, which means to become something you weren't before. It emphasizes change. It emphasizes spiritual growth. It emphasizes moving from uh, being a self-centered, self-absorbed, arrogant, uh, carnal sinner to being someone who grows in maturity, who imitates God and sees godliness. That's what godliness really is. It's manifesting God's characteristics and traits in our own spiritual life. And the command is a present imperative indicating that this is to be a be standard operating procedure in our life. We are to be kind to one another and therefore be imitators of God as dear children. This is the process of spiritual spiritual growth and spiritual advance. Now in that first phrase, be kind to one another, the word that's translated kind is the Greek word krestos which means that which causes no discomfort or pain. So when we're dealing with forgiving one another, the mandate is to be kind to one another. And how are we kind to one another? Well, the charizomai there that's translated forgiving one another is a participle, and it's a participle of means we're kind to one another by forgiving one another. We're not kind to one another by going over and, you know, cutting the grass or um, you know, helping to wash a car or helping people out with this problem or that problem. What Paul is saying is you're kind to one another by forgiving one another. So Christos is has the idea of not causing discomfort, not causing um, not cause not not making issues out of things that shouldn't be issues. There's some things you do make issues out of that are supposed to be made issues out of. Uh, so Christos has to do with that which causes no discomfort. It's something that meets a high standard of value. So when we say if somebody, we go to the store or we go to, let's say we go uh, get our car worked on. We take our car to the mechanic and they work on it and get everything fixed and they bring it back to us and they say, is everything okay? We say, yeah, everything's fine. That's the idea of this word. In fact, it's translated that way in a couple of passages. It just means it meets our standard. It is, it is, it's acceptable. It's good. Not acceptable in a mediocre way, but it's, it's what we expected. It meets our standard, uh, that we were demanding. So being kind to one another emphasizes also meeting a high standard. And in relationships, it emphasizes being benevolent, kind, or pleasant to one another. Now, that then there's an appositional word that comes after that that it helps us to understand the meaning of that a little bit more, and that's the word tender-hearted. And the word tender-hearted in the Greek is oisplachnos. Splachnos is the same word for mercy that's used elsewhere. It has to do with coming from the kidneys. The the uh, the Jews and the Greeks were very uh, concrete in their understanding of emotions, and so they would use terms like uh, from the bowels uh, because they understood emotions really do upset you. Just think about how many times you get either ups- excited or angry or worried and how your 
you know, your intestines, your your insides get all churned up. Well, that's where, why they would use these kinds of concrete words to express uh, to express emotion. And so, the word that they would use to express being merciful or compassionate in a in a legitimate sense with those uh, is is through this word splanknos, and the eu prefix just emphasizes something that's good or benevolent and in front of it so to be kind to one another has this idea of exercising mercy mercy is grace in action now that's what all of this relates to is being gracious be kind to one another is the command by forgiving one another, and the Greek word for forgiving there, as I pointed out in the past, isn't the word afiemi. It's the synonym used in several passages, charizomai, C-H-A-R-I-Z-O-M-A-I, C-H, uh, let me spell that for you again, charizomai, C-H-A-R-I-Z-O-M-A-I, charizomai from charis, meaning grace. So it's being gracious to one another. But it's used to, it is a synonym for afiemi in places to wipe out a debt. It's used in an economic sense like that. And it's this idea of not holding something against someone, some uh, offense that they have committed. So we're kind to one another by eradicating this offense that has caused a conflict. Now, that's fine as far as it goes, but the really hard part is what comes next because the comparison is, or the model, is even as God in Christ was gracious to you. Same word, charizomai. So charizomai emphasizes that the issue here is the implementation of grace. It's the implementation of grace. It's not just talking about grace. It's not just understanding grace. It's not just being oriented to grace in terms of understanding uh, the theological or doctrinal principles, but it's implementing it in a very real way in the way it impacts our relationships. So it is grace in action. You have not implemented grace in your life as a believer. You are not reflecting the grace of God in your life as a believer. You have not elevated yourself to the standard of being gracious in your life if you're not forgiving one another. That's how we exhibit kindness to one another. And the standard is as God in Christ or by means of Christ forgave you. So it's instrumental there indicating that it's through Christ and his work on the cross that we have uh, forgiveness and we are the beneficiaries of God's grace. Then in 5.1, Paul goes on to say, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. We are to imitate our father as a father teaches his children how to live. When those children grow up, they implement the teachings of their father. Then we have another command, another present imperative in verse 2. Um, before I go on, I want to reflect one other verse. Krestos, the word for kindness, is used in Luke 6.35. But love your enemies, there's the command to love your enemies, and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. So love has the idea of being, of initiating action to those who are antagonistic to us. 
It has that idea of initiating action. The action is defined as good, and it's defined also as not expecting any kind of response from the other person. Don't put an agenda on there and say, I'm going to be kind and good to you, uh, and if you don't respond, you dirty, rotten, so-and-so, then I'm going to not be kind to you anymore. Love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. This isn't talking about salvation and your destiny in heaven. This is talking about spiritual maturity, so the issue is rewards and future ruling and reigning responsibilities in the kingdom. Uh, your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High because you're acting like a son of the Most High. That's the implication there. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. There's that comparison again. We are to imitate God who's our Father because as he has demonstrated love and kindness, so we're to imitate that and reflect that to the world around us because he is kind to ungrateful and evil men. See, we don't like this because that means we have to be kind and gracious and forgiving to people that we just can't stand. And that's that same word, krestos. It's the it's this idea of kindness, of graciousness, and it comes back to what is being taught there. Okay, there's a slide with our Greek word usplaknos for tender-hearted or compassionate. And then when we come to the, the, the last verse in this in this uh, in these three verses, we have the command to walk in love or by means of love, that is to characterize our life, the unconditional, impersonal love demonstrated by God. Walk in love as Christ. See, there's that little word as again. Same word you have up in 432. That's the pattern. That's the model. That's our, that's our standard. Even as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. Us meaning people who were, what did that verse use? What verse do we have back there in Luke 6.35? Ungrateful and evil men. That's the, when we were yet enemies of God, that's what we were, ungrateful and evil men. That is, Christ died for us. Okay? Now, when we're looking at 5.2, we're to walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself as a substitute for us. So it brings in that idea of a substitutionary sacrifice. And then Paul adds a final phrase here, for a sweet-smelling aroma. Now that phrase connects it right back to Old Testament sacrifices, which is where we ended last time as I was looking at the peace offering. So if you're trying to take notes and keep these enumerated, those first four points of review are, first of all, pieces related to love, grace, reconciliation, and forgiveness. Second, we've looked at aspects of love and grace, and they only as they're understood in the character of God as the ultimate reference point and in the work of Christ can we understand love and grace. Third, Matthew 7, 3 through 4 indicates, emphasizes that we have to have humility for self-examination to face the reality of our own contribution to the problem. 
Fourth, we looked at Ephesians 4:32 to 5:2 that the pattern is God's grace. It's all about grace. That's what forgiveness emphasizes with the word charizomai, and the pattern is God's forgiveness for us. And then the fifth point that I'm going to go to is how this connects to the Old Testament illustration of the peace offering. The Old Testament illustration of the peace offering, Leviticus 3.5 says, And Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar, that's the sacrifice of the, the, the bull or the sheep or the goat, so shall burn it on the altar upon the burnt sacrifice or the burnt offering. That's the olah, the first of the uh, offerings, the five offerings mentioned at the beginning of Leviticus. So, the, the burnt offering with the smoke ascending was primarily a picture of the believer giving up himself, making a statement of his complete and total devotion to God. And all the first three sacrifices you have in Leviticus are all called sweet savor or uh, aromatic sacrifices because this same statement is made. It's an offering by fire. It's a sweet aroma to the Lord. So there's a connection that Paul makes here between what Christ does on the cross and the sweet-smelling or sweet-savor offerings at the beginning of Leviticus. And since the issue is forgiveness, and, and, which is connected to reconciliation, then we would tie that to the whole uh, issue of the peace offering. Now, last time I started looking at the peace offering in uh, Leviticus Chapter 3, the two passages that describe the, the burnt offering are Leviticus chapter 3, which gives the, sort of the mechanics. This is how you do it, who does it, what you bring. And then Leviticus chapter 7, verse 11 and following, this describes uh, how the priests were to implement it. Now, if you turn to Leviticus chapter 3, we realize, first off, that the peace offering can come from the herd. It's male, it can be male or female, so there's not a distinction made as there was with the uh, burnt offering in chapter 1. Whether male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And then we have down in verse uh, 6, it's if it's of the flock... And so the emphasis is it can be, uh, and then verse 12, if the offering is a goat. So there's no birds here, as you had with the earlier offerings. It has to be an animal because of this size, because this is the only offering where there is a shared meal. And the shared meal emphasizes fellowship and rapport and reconciliation that has taken place because of the sacrifice. That's the picture, is the peace that comes, the shared meal, is the result of the fact that a sacrifice has been made. In other words, a penalty has been paid. Now, this is important because when you talk about forgiveness, I find that forgiveness is one of those really misunderstood issues in life. If you forgive somebody, that doesn't necessarily mean that you absolve them of the consequences. Now, I won't say that again because a lot of people think forgiveness means you don't suffer any more consequences. Sometimes you can forgive somebody and they have to go through the consequences. If someone has committed a murder and they are on death row and they're going to be executed for their crime, 
just because they become a believer, as Carla Faye Tucker did back in the 90s uh, in the Houston, uh, I mean, the Texas penal system, there was a hue and cry by all kinds of pastors who said, oh, she's become a believer now. She needs to have her sentence commuted. Well, that's just, it shows how, how so many Christians don't understand this issue. Just because you're forgiven doesn't necessarily mean that the penalty should be commuted. Now, God did that several times, so it's not saying, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't be gracious at times and commute the consequences. It depends on the circumstances and the situation. When the most obvious example is in the Old Testament, when David committed two capital crimes. He committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then he conspired with Joab to have her husband Uriah killed when it was discovered that Bathsheba was pregnant. And so if he would, uh, if Uriah was killed, then there would, wouldn't be a problem. So David is complicit in murder, and he is responsible for adultery, both of which were to be punished with the death penalty under the Mosaic law. But God commuted that sentence for David. He's forgiven, and the consequences are reduced. There were consequences. There were consequences that impacted his family fourfold uh, during the coming coming years. And there was tremendous uh, disruption and things that happened within his family, incest, uh, murder of one half-brother for another, the rebellion of Absalom, all these things were the death of the baby, all these things were part of the the discipline, the divine discipline and the consequences of the action, but it wasn't as severe as it could have been. Other times God commutes the sentence completely and there are no consequences. So forgiveness does not mean necessarily that consequences are removed. That might happen, that might not happen, or they might just be diminished. So forgiveness and, and the implementation of consequences or punishment are two different issues. They are not the same thing. And yet most people in our culture cannot distinguish between the two. If you know, your, your kids will get you on that if they haven't already. Well, you forgave me, so why are you punishing me? Because you need to know that action, certain actions demand punishment and consequences. But you're forgiven, you're loved, just doesn't feel like it right now. So there, that that is uh, ma- maintaining that distinction in in terms of those those um, uh, forgiveness and consequences. The other thing that that we have in terms of forgiveness is forgiveness does not necessarily mean that everything is going to go back the way it was instantaneously, because in a number of serious situations where there has been uh, financial defrauding, where there has been physical or sexual abuse, where there's been criminal action, then it is not wise for the person who has been the, the, the wronged person, the person who has been defrauded or abused, it is not wise for them to put themselves back into a situation where it can happen all over again. Uh, that doesn't mean that they haven't forgiven the person. 
But if you have entered into a financial transaction, let's say a real estate contract with somebody, and then they defrauded you and you lost uh, a couple of hundred thousand dollars, and that person comes to you and asks forgiveness, you can for, you for, are to forgive them and truly, genuinely forgive them, but that doesn't mean that you're going to enter into a real estate deal with them the next day. That would be foolish. doesn't have anything to do with whether or not you've forgiven them. It's whether or not you have learned your lesson. You know, those are different issues. So we have to understand what forgiveness really is. As I pointed out last time, the English Dictionary, uh, Oxford English Dictionary, points out that um, forgiveness has to do with not harboring ill will, laying aside any desire for uh, vengeance, any bitterness, any hostility, uh, any resentment that occurs as a result of the conflict that had occurred. And I'm going to describe that a little more because I'm developing some ways to think about that that I think will be helpful for everybody in terms of um, looking at forgiveness from an object, a subjective aspect, which means you as the subject, the one forgiving what's going on inside of your soul, and an objective aspect, and that has to do with what happens in the life and actions of the person who is the object of forgiveness. And these are two things that need to be, uh, that need to be distinguished. So the peace offering illustrates this, that the peace that occurs, the reconciliation occurs, occurs because a penalty has been paid. And my point in everything I've just said is that the penalty that is paid is, is it may vary, and sometimes that we may say in terms of the actions with an individual that there's no consequences, but actually a penalty is paid, and as I'll point out, that penalty for all sin was paid for at the cross. So a penalty has to be paid. Now, when you look at the uh, aspects of the of the peace offering, and turn over to... Uh, Leviticus chapter 7, the last part of chapter 7 from 11 down to, or the middle part, 11 to 21, deals with, deals with the aspects of, of eating the meal together. And this is very important because it shows that the two parties that, that have been a part of this conflict are now going to, they're not just going to kiss and make up, they are going to sit down and have a meal, and there is a real genuine restoration of the relationship. And that is very hard to do, and I I would suggest that you can't do it unless you have the power of God the Holy Spirit, unless you're in fellowship and you're really trying to do what, uh, what the Word of God says to do. But the principle that I want to take from from the peace offering is that a penalty is paid before there is the reconciliation. There is the a penalty paid, and I want to see how that works out in some passages in the New Testament. So now I want to take you back into the New Testament to Romans. We've touched on Romans 5 before, but I want to take you back to Romans chapter 5, which is one of two key chapters on reconciliation in the New Testament. You have Romans 5 and 2 Corinthians 5. So if you can just remember that reconciliation relates to 5, you have Romans 5 and 2 Corinthians 5, then you'll find your way to the reconciliation passages. 
In Romans chapter 4, Paul has explained justification, that justification takes place because God, as the supreme judge of the universe, is able to decree in a judicial decision that the that the individual is just before his court because that person has been imputed or given the righteousness of Christ. And that's what salvation is. We don't do anything for it. It is pure grace. Grace means God gives us something that we don't deserve. Anything less than that doesn't meet the standard of grace. It is completely lacking in grace. So justification, which we describe justification by faith alone, is a result of God's grace in providing a Savior by which our sins are imputed to Jesus, and he pays their penalty in full. And then when we trust him, his righteousness is imputed to us or credited to us so that our sin is covered. It's not removed in the sense that we become not sinners or it never happened because you hear in, especially in um, Bible colleges, this trite little phrase that justification means just as if I'd never sinned. And that's just theologically poor. For the first reason is, is because our condemnation isn't because we sinned. Our condemnation is because Adam sinned. So it's not just as if I'd never sinned. Secondly, we're going to continue to sin, and our sin or not sin isn't the issue. The issue is we are saved because we possess Christ's righteousness, and that is what God looks at, not our unrighteousness or our relative righteousness. So it's not just as if I'd never sinned. That, that, that's almost heresy. Justification is, is free. Now, having Understood justification, Paul then moves on in Romans 5.1, and he says, Therefore, he's taking the, his explanation of salvation to the next step. He says, Therefore, having been justified by faith. Now, that's a rather ambiguous way to translate this participle. It should be translated with a causal sense. For what Paul is saying is, because we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, two things need to be stated here in terms of the grammar that are very important. That phrase that's translated, having been justified, is one word in the Greek, but it's a perfect participle. And the perfect a passive participle emphasizes a completed action in past time. So you have this completed action back here that justification took place in the past and it's done with. It's not a process. Now, I could go off on a long rabbit trail, otherwise known as an Anacolutan here, because this is the problem with both lordship salvation and Roman Catholic theology is justification is seen as a process. Now, you'll find a lot of Reformed guys in lordship who will say it is, uh, it's a once-for-all action, but... They don't really work it out that way. Roman Catholicism is much more overt with this, and Roman Catholic theology says that having been justified, <clears throat> that having been justified is, is not a one-time action, it's a process. But this makes it clear that because we have been justified, completed action, perfect tense, uh, having been com- 
completely justified by faith in the past, we now, present time, we now have peace. Peace is a real present time possession that every believer has with God because at some time in their past, they were justified by faith alone in Christ alone. So Paul starts off by saying, therefore, because we have been justified by faith, we presently, currently have right now peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The conflict's been resolved. Then if you skip down to verse 9, Paul goes on to say, much more than having now been justified, same phrase, perfect passive participle with the emphasis on the present reality of the past completed action, having now been justified by his blood, which is a metaphor for his death, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Now, shall be saved is what tense? Future. See, you thought you were, when you were justified, you thought you were saved, didn't you? That's not what Paul says in Romans. Paul says you were justified, but you will be saved in the future. See, the word sozo in, in, has different meanings, and it rarely has the meaning in Scripture that is synonymous with justification. It does in several places, but not. But most of the time it has a different sense. Sometimes it refers to our present spiritual life. We're being, we are being saved. And sometimes it has to do with our future glorification. And that's how it's used mostly in Romans. In Romans 5, 5, 9, having been justified, that's phase one, salvation, phase one, justification, when we put our faith alone in Christ alone, at that instant we're justified. And then in the future, we will be saved from his wrath, that is, eternal condemnation, eternal judgment through him. So we have the past and the future. In Romans 5.10, Paul goes on to say, For if when we were enemies, see, when we were enemies, when we were obnoxious, when we were disloyal, when we were rebellious, when we were uh, doing everything against God, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, when we were as obnoxious as we could possibly be, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Now, notice that. It doesn't say we're reconciled to God through our faith in Christ. Did, did it say that? No, it didn't say that, does it? It says we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now, shall be saved is future tense, but his life is emphasizing something different, so... The shall be saved here is not talking about future glorification. The shall be saved here is talking about how we live our present tense, present tense spiritual life. We are saved in the present, our ongoing sanctification, our ongoing spiritual growth by his, by his life. His death paid the penalty for sin, but in his life he demonstrated how to live by means of God the Holy Spirit, how to solve problems, how to depend upon God, how to apply the word, all of those things. So by by implementing that, then we can grow and mature as believers uh, in this life. So in Romans, we have the, the principle of reconciliation and peace is built on 
a penalty that's paid, a sacrifice that's made, and that the forgiveness that occurred at the cross. Now, I'm tying a lot of different loose ends together here for you, so I don't want to get, get, uh, get too far afield so that at the end of the uh, lesson tonight, we can pull these, th- these threads together a little better. In 2 Corinthians, this is the other passage that deals with reconciliation and peace. We read, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, and you are if you're a believer in Christ, he's a new creation. See, you're a new creation in Christ. You still have a sin nature, but you're a new creature in Christ. You have new capacities, new capabilities. You have new resources. You're a new creature in Christ. All things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And then verse 18, Paul says, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us. Notice, God is the one who initiated, that's grace, He initiated the reconciliation. He reconciled us to him. We don't reconcile ourselves to God. Reconciliation is God's work, not man's work. Now, all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and then has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So, application. If you are in any kind of relationship, business relationship, marital relationship, family relationship, friendship relationship, whatever it might be, any kind of relationship with another person and a conflict is involved, then we are to pursue peace because that's part of the ministry of reconciliation. This isn't just limited to preaching or explaining the gospel to people so they can be reconciled to God. How can we talk, how can a person talk to other people about being reconciled to God when they can't implement the basic application of reconciliation to other people? How can that work? And that's what the implication of this is. All things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not when the world was lovely, wonderful, happy, and pleased with God, but when the world is completely antagonistic to God and hostile to God. God is initiating in grace his plan to effect reconciliation and peace. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. God isn't saying, okay, you're, you, here's your list of sins. He imputed those sins to Christ on the cross. He's not imputing those sins to the world, not imputing their sins, their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word or the message of reconciliation. Verse 20, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. We represent him. That means as representatives of Christ, the standard of behavior in our life is to imitate what Christ has done. That takes us right back to the Ephesians 4.32-5.2 passage in terms of, of, of forgiving one another as God through Christ has forgiven us. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. 
We implore, now in your Bibles, it's in italics, it says you, but Paul's not talking to the Corinthians. They're already saved. They're already reconciled. He's talking about we, meaning the collective of the body of Christ as Christians. We implore, that is, unbelievers, non-Christians, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God's the one who does the work, but the way the unbeliever is is reconciled to God is by trusting in Christ. He has to, in terms of the conflict, he has to respond to the initiative of grace, to the overtures of grace. But we all know they don't all do that. In the same way, when you are trying to resolve a conflict in your life, whether it's marriage, business, family, whatever it might be, there are going to be times and people that just aren't going to respond no matter what you do. There are people who aren't going to admit their fault, their guilt, their part of the action at all. In fact, they're just going to continue to blame you for everything. But we are to function on that higher standard of grace. We are not to fall short of that standard. Now, when I talk about reconciliation here, I've emphasized that this really took place at the cross. And I'm going to tie it back just briefly. We've gone through this in detail, Colossians 2, 13 and 14, where Paul said, when, you were dead in your, when we were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh, he has made us together, alive together with him by having forgiven you all trespasses, that's wiping them out, because he wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he's taken it out of the way and nailed it to the cross. It wasn't, it wasn't nailed to the cross by our faith in Christ in 1955 or 1965 or 1995. It got nailed to the cross. That list of indictments got nailed to the cross some 2000, almost 2000 years ago. That's when reconciliation occurred. Now the issue is to affect that, not to lay the groundwork for it. The groundwork's already, already occurred. So, this all raises the question, how do you forgive somebody that won't admit guilt? Didn't you just say they had to, there had to be a recognition of guilt? There had to be a penalty paid? Uh, and all of these examples that I've given, the peace offering, etc., penalties paid, that forgiveness, when, when we realize experientially the forgiveness of sin in our life, don't we have to come to that point where we recognize that we're a sinner? and that, that we're in need of salvation, that at some point there's an admission of failure or guilt on our part for contributing to, to the conflict in terms of, of sin. And there are passages that, that indicate that. For example, Luke 17, 3 and 4. Going back to the Gospels, we'll stop here. I've got a couple more Gospel passages I want to go to to tie all these threads together. It's just not possible to do it all in one night. In Luke 17, 3 and 4, we, Jesus said, Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him, which means to confront him with it. That's the issue of Matthew 7, 3 and 4. Matthew 7, 3 and 4 tells us how to go about that. You go about that by being humble and making and taking the log out of your own eye before you take the grain of sand out of the other person's eye. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. 
And how do you do that? The, remember the forgiveness, you're kind, which means you're not doing it in a way to cause, to, that, that would overtly, intentionally cause pain and suffering. Uh, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, now that's the word metamelamine. And we don't, we have trouble with this word repent. Repent means simply to change, to change his mind. He's done something against you, and you confront him with it, and he says, you're right, I was wrong. What are we supposed to do? Forgive him. And here the word is afiemi, uh, which is the verb for wiping it out as if it never occurred. And then the Lord goes on to say, and if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you know, I'm sorry, I was wrong, I did something wrong, you shall forgive him each and every time. In Matthew 18, where I'm going to go next week, Peter says, well, Lord, how many times will we save him? Seventy times? And the Lord says, seventy times seven, which is an idiomatic way of expressing, uh, using a Jewish idiom indicating you don't stop. Day in, day out, they just keep doing the same thing, and they keep coming back and saying, you know, I was wrong. I'm supposed to forgive him? Well, isn't that what God does for us? I don't want anybody raising any hands now. This isn't true confession. This isn't show and tell. But how many times have we gone to the Lord in confession and confessed the same old sin, and if we had had a counter, we're somewhere up into the six or maybe seven digits by now in confessing whatever sin that was, arrogance, anger, pride, lust, whatever it is, We've been, we've been confessing the same sin against God, you know, 239,000 times now since we were eight years old. Now that's the pattern. Does God still forgive us just as quickly and for the same reason, the 269,000th time is the first time? Yes. He doesn't say, you know, I'm just getting tired of this. You know, can't you get it right? Haven't you learned this yet? I'm not going to forgive you the next time. It's over with. See, grace has a higher standard, and we can't fall short of that standard of grace, which is always patterned in the character and in the character of God. And so we have to pursue peace with all people, and we have to understand love and grace, and we have to understand forgiveness and what it is and what it isn't. And we're going to come back next time, tie this together, looking at the end of Matthew 18, and then putting this together with what's happening in the next three verses in Hebrews 12:15 and following. Notice that next phrase there, the next phrase that so often is taken by people to mean that somehow you just don't get saved. What have I been saying all night? Looking carefully lest you fall short of the grace of God. What, what's the standard for forgiving people? It's God's grace. If you don't live up to that standard, then you fell short of that standard. And you're not forgiving as God in Christ forgave us. That's what that means. It's just a simple phrase. Falling short of God's grace means you're not living up to the standard that God set for forgiveness. And then that's tied into Esau. So we'll see that and pull that together uh, next Thursday night. 
Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, as difficult as it is, and in some relationships it's extremely difficult, involves a set of, of extremely sensitive emotions. Father, we just pray that we can come to understand what this means and how this applies and that we might have a more clear understanding of how you have forgiven us, that we might implement your grace in our relationship to others. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.